0: And welcome back to Vancouver Consumer. I'm Sterling Fox. In just a few minutes, Kyla Lee from the Acumen Law Group returns to Vancouver Consumer to talk about the recent changes to Canada's impaired driving laws. Lots to talk about, and we look forward to your calls and comments too. But first, here are some more of those top consumer stories we're following this week. And before the first month of the year has even come to an end, most people have given up on their annual commitment to themselves. Discouraging story, I know. But it's true. Research conducted by Strava, the social network for athletes, has discovered that Saturday, January 12th, is the fateful day of a lot of New Year's resolutions. Their database is pretty strong here. After analyzing more than 31 million online global activities last January, Strava was able to pinpoint the date when most people report failing their resolutions. According to a new study, just 8% of people achieve their New Year's goals, while around 80% fail. Roughly 55% of New Year's resolutions were health-related, such as exercising more and eating healthier. And the other biggie is getting out of personal financial debt unrealistic expectations were a big drive in failed resolutions but it's not all grim there is hope it's just about how you set up your resolutions the experts say if your goal is for example to lose weight or improve lifestyle habits quitting smoking stuff like that try not to make too many changes all at once start with small changes and continue to build on these or try to tackle one change at a time results will not happen overnight or even in the first two weeks of the new year back to the Strava study, it found if exercising, for example, was one of your resolutions, then working out with others increased more activity and joining a club boosted people's activity by up to 45%. So again, it's the old buddy system. A San Francisco doctor is warning people about selfie wrist oh yes it's almost 2019 caused by people using their phones cameras to take pictures of themselves selfie wrist quote is a form of carpal tunnel syndrome syndrome rather and may feel like a tingling or sharp pain which comes from flexing your wrist inward or holding your phone too long without moving close quote there have been several incidents in recent years in which doctors have diagnosed selfie wrist according to statista at least 62 percent of americans have taken at least one selfie of themselves, including 82% of people between the ages of 18 to 34. I'm surprised it's that low. And a study this year discovered that between 2011 and 2017, there have been almost 300 deaths associated with taking selfies, mostly coming from the U.S., India, Russia, and Pakistan. Toyota is conducting a safety recall involving certain 2019 model year Corolla hatchback vehicles in Canada. Just under a 1,000 vehicles are involved. And in those, there is a possibility the torque converter in the transmission, the continuously variable transmission, could fail. So under circumstances, this could result in a loss of power while driving at higher speeds, which obviously could increase the risk of a crash. For all involved vehicles, Toyota dealers will replace the uh, the transmission with a new one containing a new torque converter at no cost to customers. They're currently preparing the remedy, and known owners of all involved vehicles will receive direct notification uh, beginning late January. According to the CRTC, BC is getting a new area code next year. Area codes 236, 250, 604, and the latest, 778, are all expected to be exhausted, as in full up by May 2020. And so, BC is getting another new area code in the coming year. This one will be 672, and it will be used as a relief for the entire province, covering areas that currently include all four. The new code will roll out next May 4th, exactly a year ahead of the projected exhaust dates. So that's uh, something to look forward to, the 672 area code. Those are some more of the week's top stories. Kyla Lee from the Acumen Law Group is in studio to take your calls and talk about the changes to Canada's impaired driving laws and obviously we're going to talk about the story of the woman from Cranbrook, 82 years old made to stand for two hours in the middle of the night while Mounties attempted 15 times to obtain a breath sample. Uh, Bizarre story and perhaps one extreme example of what happens when untested unchallenged new laws are introduced to people who may not completely understand the power that they now have your calls will be welcome when we return on vancouver consumer right here on cknw And welcome back to Vancouver Consumer on this last show of 2018. A pleasure to welcome this guest back to the program. Kyla Lee is an attorney with the Acumen Law Group here in Vancouver, Uh, does a lot of work with uh, defending uh, criminal defense of uh, people charged with impaired driving. Welcome back. Good to see you again.
1: Yes, nice to see you. Thank you for having me back.
0: It's a pleasure. So uh, December 18th was the implementation day for Canada's new impaired driving laws, all brought in because of the legalization of cannabis and there was nothing in the law prior to this impaired wise about how to handle cannabis impairment does the new law address that
1: it does we've got now limits for the amount of thc that you can have in your system there's mechanisms to test people for thc roadside and then um, more strict rules surrounding the testing of individuals for impairment by drugs at the police station
0: Okay. Uh, did, in the course of adding on all of these cannabis details, did they alter any of the alcohol side of the impaired law as well?
1: They basically rewrote the entire alcohol side of the impaired driving law. So we've seen a complete overhaul of alcohol-impaired driving in this country.
0: So what's what are the big changes? What would we notice? Because, you know, there have been check stops and people have been getting, so, have you had any drink tonight? And all that kind of stuff. We've been going through it to the holidays here. I don't know anyone that's run afoul of the law, but what might we expect at a check stop tonight?
1: What you most will expect is being asked to blow into a breathalyzer regardless of whether you've had anything to drink and regardless of whether you're displaying any symptoms of alcohol consumption. The biggest change is that the police now have the opportunity and the right to demand that you blow into a roadside breathalyzer with no grounds whatsoever.
0: Do they do that frequently, to the best of your knowledge? It's only been a couple of weeks. Are they a little over the top with this, or are they being careful and and sort of rationing who gets to, to blow.
1: They've been using sort of a grace period approach where they've been using the first few weeks to educate the public. So pulling them over, asking them, are you aware of the new laws, explaining what they are. But I have already seen cases where people have been given the mandatory demand and asked to blow.
0: Okay. So if you're um, uh, in uh, some kind of situation, whether it's a check stop just on your way home from a gathering or shopping or whatever, or uh, you get pulled over for a, you know any kind of traffic stop, and the, the police officer says, uh, I want you to blow in this machine. And you can say, but officer, okay, but I can tell you straight up, I haven't had anything to drink or smoke or anything that would impair me e- easily in the last 24 hours. Well, I don't care. I, I want you to blow anyway. You have no choice, do you?
1: You don't. If you refuse to blow, you're facing a mandatory consequence of a $2,000 fine, a one-year driving prohibition, and a criminal record.
0: So let's talk about the story of the woman up in Cranbrook. Uh, she's 82. She has medical issues, so she can't blow in the strength required to move the meter on the little breathalyzer thing. So as I understand it, this this goes back now a few days, but she was pulled over uh, and, and made to stand outside, uh, outside of her car, outside of her home, uh, while uh, Mounties in the Cranbrook area attempted to attain a breath sample, which she was simply physically incapable of doing. She didn't didn't have the wherewithal to move the meter. So that person uh, was fined 500 bucks. Her car was towed from her driveway uh, because she failed to blow. The The first thing she did, smart woman, it's the middle of the night. The first thing she did was go directly to the hospital, Kyla, and had a blood alcohol test, which registered a big fat zero So then you take that, along with the inconvenience, to say the very least, to the police station and say, come on, and she still got fined.
1: Yep, absolutely. That's the the problem with this law is that people who are completely incapable of providing a sample, who have done nothing wrong and are completely sober, are going to be targeted and are going to be punished. And in BC, of course, we have the roadside penalties and roadside justice for impaired driving. So rather than having your day in court and being able to argue that, you know, this is wrong before you're penalized, in British Columbia, people are going to be immediately penalized and face the consequences regardless of their innocence.
0: As was the case with this woman whose car was towed uh, from her driveway to some impound center. Now, what about my right as a private citizen when confronted by a police officer who insists that I go through this test? Uh, do I at least have the right to call my lawyer?
1: No. Um, This will have to be revisited, though. The Supreme Court of Canada has ruled that up until now, you don't have the right to call a lawyer in a roadside breath-testing situation because of the fact that the officer has to have a suspicion you have alcohol in your body and because the testing has to proceed immediately.
0: Right. Based on that suspicion, probable cause, right?
1: Exactly. Okay. So now that that's eliminated, there may be a new challenge being brought, um, and I say may because I'm contemplating doing it, um, a new challenge being brought to whether or not you do have the right to consult a lawyer before providing a sample.
0: Now, do you need when you because you're say you're considering a challenge and you and I have had this conversation now for several months uh, about, you know, uh, you say there are some lawyers literally licking their chops for a chance to have a bash at this in terms of constitutional challenges to the legality of some of these things. When you uh, contemplate a challenge, Kyla, do you have to have a specific challenge? case to take forward. You just can't go, this is wrong and unconstitutional and I'm I'm here to challenge it. You can't throw the challenge flag, can you?
1: No, you can't. An attorney general can, but uh, as a private citizen, no, you can't do that. So you have to have somebody who's affected by the law to bring the challenge. And so now we need to find the right case with the right set of facts to make it the strongest possible argument for the challenge.
0: So this uh, law that uh, has been implemented simply a couple of weeks ago on December 18th, this is pan-Canadian, this uh, this same In Newfoundland and Yukon, as it is here in Vancouver. Yes. So. But you say in British Columbia we have one – there's a there's a differential here because we have the the uh, prohibition at the roadside uh, or, or the possibility at least of, of the law uh, removing your vehicle at, at the roadside. That doesn't exist in all Canadian provinces?
1: It doesn't, no. We have provincial legislation dealing with drinking and driving. That was found to be constitutional by the Supreme Court of Canada in 2015. And so the police can elect to either charge you criminally and proceed with a criminal investigation or – Or to issue you a roadside prohibition, and that's generally the preference of police because they're not cross-examined. It doesn't take any court time. They submit a report, and their involvement is done.
0: So, what is what is what is entailed in a roadside prohibition?
1: So 90 days off the road, uh, 30 days of a vehicle impoundment, and you're responsible for the towing and storage costs, $500 fine, $250 license reinstatement fee. And at the end of all of that, you have to enroll in and successfully complete an alcohol counseling and education course at your own cost. And it's about $850 plus tax.
0: And I'm thinking too of the month-long impoundment charge by busters or whoever, that's not going to be cheap either. So this could easily roll into four or five grand before you even think much about it?
1: It usually comes to about $5,000.
0: Wow. Okay. And what remedy is there um, if you get into this pickle? You sort of have to go with it, don't you?
1: You do. um, You can dispute it. You've got seven days from the date the roadside prohibitions issued to you to dispute it. But if you miss that seven days, there's nothing that you can do. You're stuck with it.
0: Okay. Now what's different in other provinces, what do they do differently that uh, that we don't here in BC? Or perhaps the reverse, what do we do that isn't done elsewhere?
1: So we have this sort of two-tiered system where you can either get the roadside justice or you can have your day in court. Right. Um, other provinces usually have a roadside prohibition followed by the court case. So you get both, which means you get an opportunity to have vindication for your charter rights. Because in British Columbia, the adjudicators who deal with the roadside prohibitions don't have the authority to consider whether evidence was obtained in violation of your rights or to consider whether a law itself is unconstitutional.
0: Okay, let's talk uh, cannabis impairment because that's where we started and then we got sidetracked on alcohol, which is important because I don't know how many people are, because most of us knew that they changed the impaired laws because it was all about cannabis now being a legal item. But I don't know that many of us are also aware, Kyla, that they really had a bash at the alcohol content of that law as well. So as you say, they basically rewrote the package, didn't they?
1: Yes. And it was surprising that they did this because it's essentially an exact copy of a conservative bill that was uh, attempted many times when we had a conservative government mm-hmm. federally that failed and they just incorporated it into the changes to deal with cannabis impaired driving and sold it to people as protecting the public when in fact it was eroding a significant number of constitutional rights that we have.
0: Well, that's that's even funnier in a strange way because of course absolutely nothing Stephen Harper ever did was even slightly good for Canada or even slightly right <laughs> according to the new regime. That, that, that's interesting. Uh, on the matter of cannabis impairment, they they have this device, this German-made device, and the name escapes me. You can help me with this.
1: The Drager Drug That's Test
0: it, Five Thousand. The Drager Five Thousand, which some Canadian police forces have, have adopted, ours, City of Vancouver, has not, and in fact, quite adamantly said no, thank you. It wasn't over- They said no, and it was quite emphatic. Why?
1: There are a number of problems with the device, Uh, in part that it doesn't function well in cold temperatures, in part that it doesn't actually show whether or not you're impaired. It only shows a positive result for any level of cocaine in your system and a positive result for a certain minimum level of THC. So it might not establish what the police need for an arrest. And the testing time takes up to 25 minutes, if you factor in the time it takes to collect the sample, observe the subject, and wait for the results, which raises significant concerns again about the right to call a lawyer.
0: Right. Uh, and the collecting of a sample involves the swabbing of the inside of a cheek with a q tip like thing. And I guess you have to really get enough stuff on it be, to be able to s- insert it into the machine for an appropriate reading. Um, and, and how, and of course, if it's below four degrees Celsius, the machine itself. May or may not be somewhat accurate.
1: Yes, they found... In Canada.
0: They introduced this in Canada, where four degrees on December the 29th, here in Vancouver is no big deal, but it's pretty rare everywhere else in the country.
1: Yes, and they found that there was about a 15% rate of false positives in cold temperatures.
0: Ah, okay. So uh, are you uh, are more and more police forces across the country um, s- keeping an arm's length distance from this device? Or because it's the only thing available, are they going, well, it's that or nothing. So here we go.
1: A lot of police forces now are saying we have to have something. So we're using it. We've seen charges now uh, being laid in Manitoba that started with investigations using this device. And I found that surprising because Manitoba is very cold at this time of year. No
0: kidding. So I'm Got to ask you this question. We're going to open up our phone lines during the news and, and uh, let our listeners have at you. But this this one came up has come up in, in conversation before. These swabs, they, the the officer on the scene now has a very healthy sample of your DNA. And after uh, the getting the reading or not from the machine and deciding whether or not you're impaired, etc., there is a little matter of your DNA. In the possession of the local police department. What does the law say about what the cops have to do with your DNA after taking the sample and obtaining a reading?
1: Nothing. So there's no limitations on what they can do with it and no obligation on them to give it back to you.
0: Or destroy it exactly. I don't necessarily want a an old <laughs> slimy old Q-tip back, but if I was comfortable knowing that it had been appropriately destroyed, that would be that would be fine. But there's not there's no requirement at all.
1: No, none at all. And uh, ostensibly, you could argue that the police have an obligation to preserve the sample and keep it for your trial.
0: Oh, ah, oh. well, and wouldn't that onus be on on the side of of the law?
1: It would in the sense that you could argue your rights were violated if it wasn't preserved, but it also raises these big concerns about police storing your DNA and having unfettered access to it for a period of maybe up to a year before you have your day in court.
0: And welcome back to the program, Sterling Fox with Kyla Lee from the Acumen Law Group in studio. Ms. Lee is a lawyer who defends uh, criminally uh, charged people in cases of impairment, cannabis, alcohol and other. Uh, Kyla, uh, let's open up the phone lines, okay? First things first, 604-280-9898. If you have any questions or calls or comments, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on the cell connection. We talked about, and we have in the past as well, about challenges to this and i know you're kind of keen and you've already said so on this program today we have witnesses who are kind of keen to have a have a go at this in terms of challenges to the new impaired laws less than two weeks old what's the most likely part of the package to be challenged
1: The mandatory breath testing roadside and also the blood drug concentration limits for THC. I think those are the two that people are most interested in challenging and that most need to be challenged.
0: So now the mandatory roadside testing we've just discussed, where any officer now without probable cause, that used to have to, the, the, the individual police person used to have to say, They're driving erratically. I leaned into the car and I smelled a lot of booze. Your Honor, I had probable cause. So I conducted the the test. That's gone. They just get to do it on a whim if they want. Yes. That's bizarre.
1: It's absolutely bizarre. And remember, we live in a country with a charter of rights and freedoms that says you have the right to be secure against unreasonable search and seizure. Unreasonable means... A search without a reason, and mm. this is exactly what they're authorizing the police to do.
0: Okay, and the second most likely item in the new package to be challenged deals with concentration of THC, the the psychedelic, if you will, ingredient in cannabis, the stuff that gets you off, uh, in 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 the blood. Yes. Uh, because why? Why would that be challengeable? It's either there or it isn't, isn't it?
1: It is there or it isn't, but whether or not it's there doesn't mean you're impaired. Uh, THC is stored in your fat cells, so it can be re-released into your bloodstream over time. Um, If you are breaking down fat cells because you're exercising, you can have a spike in your THC concentration, even if you haven't used cannabis for days or weeks. Ah. And medical users are also likely to be disproportionately affected by this. If you need your THC to function normally, like the rest of us do, then you should have that and be behind the wheel, rather than being impaired in your functioning because you don't have your medicine.
0: Ah, and um, in terms of, uh, I can't imagine, uh, the lineups at courthouses across the country, which of the two is likely to be heard by the Supreme Court of Canada first?
1: The mandatory breath testing is probably going to be heard first. And the reason for that is in order to challenge the THC limits, the evidence gathering takes a lot longer than a roadside breath test. A roadside breath test can take a couple seconds. Mm-hmm. And so the case can progress a lot more quickly. With a blood drug concentration, we need to have the results of blood tests, which take a minimum of 119 days right now. And of course, that time period is only increasing after legalization of cannabis.
0: Okay. So let's go back to the roadside again, Kyla. If the if, uh a police officer says, I need you to blow into this device, uh, and and it, it shows you're clean. You have had no alcohol, and uh, so it doesn't register. No red lights go off. Are you then free to go on your own way?
1: You are, yes, uh, barring some other reason to keep you there, like if you have an outstanding warrant or something. Of course.
0: But let's suppose the same officer says, but, you know, okay, I see a zero reading here, but, you know, I'm still not confident that you aren't on something. So then how do they, if they if they can't measure you by the breathalyzer for cannabis, and they don't have one of those devices where they take the swab and insert it into the machine, how does the roadside cop determine whether you're high
1: or not. They do something called a standardized field sobriety test. So it's a series of three separate tests. One tests uh, your eye for involuntary jerking of the eyeball from left to right. Uh, The next one tests your balance by asking you to stand on one leg for 30 seconds. And the last one tests your balance and divided attention and physical coordination by asking you to walk the line. So you may see these on TV programs like COPS.
0: Well, sure. But these are are tests for drunks that they've been conducting for decades. Did, Did they not come up with anything new?
1: No, they didn't. And in fact, when they were developing the standardized field sobriety tests, they were developing tests to look for drug impairment, and they determined that these weren't effective at detecting people who were impaired by drugs, but they actually did have applicability to how alcohol affects you. And yet in Canada, we've ignored that scientific background in the creation of the tests and have just you know, force them to be used for drug impaired driving.
0: So now we also have this other thing that many Canadian uh, law enforcement people are being required to do. They have to become drug recognition experts. They go to some school for a couple of weeks and take an intensive course, after which they return to their home forces as one of the few on the force able to provide What, Kyla? Information in court? Information at the roadside? What's the objective?
1: So it's information that's used in court, and with some of the new changes to the law, what the drug recognition expert testifies about in court is presumed to be uh, evidence that you are impaired. So as long as they get the results and they say, you know, I think you're impaired by cannabis, and then they get a blood or a urine test that has the presence of THC, then it's presumed that you were impaired and you were impaired by cannabis.
0: Okay. Uh, And so what then, you, the person upon whom these presumptions have been made, where does that leave you?
1: In a very sticky situation because you have to challenge them. But in order to challenge the expert evidence, you essentially need your own expert. Right. And it's very difficult to find somebody who does defense expert work dealing with the drug recognition evaluation tests because the International Association of Chiefs of Police, who do the training, refuse to train anybody other than active police officers.
0: Oh, so a lawyer who wants to understand what this whole thing is like. Can't go to the local police station and say, look, I'm not guilty of anything, but please, I'd love you to put me through every test that you've got just so I know what my clients are going to go through. They're not going to get any help from the local cops.
1: No, we'd probably be laughed out of the police station.
0: Okay. So how then do people like you, criminal defense lawyers, educate yourselves as to what this is really all about,
1: there are some people in the United States who offer these courses. And uh, about a year ago, I flew one of them up into uh, Vancouver, and he put on the program for a number of defense lawyers from the Canadian Impaired Driving Lawyers Association.
0: Okay, uh, and w- w- did you find after the course, the same course that the police officers are going to take, did you find that you had your your knowledge and understanding of the law had improved?
1: My knowledge and understanding of the law was probably about the same, because we all sort of knew what the law said, uh, but the knowledge and understanding of the effects of the tests and how to challenge that and challenge the administration of the tests and what's done properly and what's not proper was greatly expanded. So it was a really useful exercise.
0: I think, you know, people kind of get there, and I've had some emails after, because you've been with us a couple of times, and we always get into this conversation because it's changing so dramatically and so rapidly uh, with the, the... Uh, The cannabis legalization and now these new laws to correspondingly, hopefully in some way, allow law enforcement to deal with a whole new set of realities that didn't exist a year ago. So in the course of conversations like this, sometimes people get the impression, Kyla, that we're in some way condoning uh, driving while stoned or drunk or whatever. And none of this is true. It's, it's simply the furthest possible from the truth. But what we're trying to get at is the essence of the law. I understand it as a private citizen in a free society. I have certain rights, like the example, for example, to be assumed to be innocent until proven guilty. Well, this just takes that and chucks it right out the door because on my way home from work this afternoon, I may get pulled over and some guy may arbitrarily decide... I'm stoned, and that's, that's it. You're busted.
1: Yep, absolutely. And it, this is a huge, I think, a huge degradation of the charter rights that we're guaranteed in this country. I see this as a huge step away from what uh, the government had in mind when it enacted the charter and when it promised Canadians that they had these rights
0: at the same time, you want to be in a situation and live in a society that discourages aberrant behavior. You don't want people to feel good about, you know, having 18 drinks and trying to drive home. That's just dead wrong. So where's the balance?
1: I think the balance comes from looking at other ways to discourage that aberrant behavior. You know, we could put more money into funding enforcement of impa- existing impaired driving laws, having more roadblocks, having them consistently on major routes, um, better public education campaigns, particularly ones that target men aged 18 to, you know, 25. The high-risk group. Exactly. Right. And having that those education campaigns going on at the high-risk times in the middle of the night when people are more likely to drink and drive. Mm-hmm. But that's not something that we've been doing We've been instead saying, well, it's not working what we've been doing. So rather than change our approach to the existing laws, we're just going to rewrite the law and see if that works better.
0: Interesting. Now, I'm just looking, I'm just looking, doing a little homework getting ready for you because you require a lot of homework on my part. (laughs) Uh, Down in Utah, uh, they have dropped the legal uh, limit for alcohol impairment from 0.08, which we have in Canada, to 0.05, which is like one drink for a moderately uh, person, a moderately sized person, you may get away with. However, if you're a tiny person and you have one drink, that may that may just be enough to put it over the top, right?
1: Absolutely. For most women, it's one nine ounce glass of wine.
0: Wow. Okay. And now this is this is in Utah which is a, well, it's, it's a state dominated by the Mormon religion, which teaches its members to, well, not drink. So it's understandable, I suppose, that this would come in this jurisdiction. Uh, but is it a trend, Kyla? Do you see more states becoming more rigid in terms of those limits and their enforcement?
1: What I've been hearing from my colleagues in the United States is that lots of states now, because of the success that they've seen after the first six months of this in Utah, are now contemplating a lower limit. And Remember, too, that in British Columbia, we have the administrative regime that puts a 0.05 limit for the roads, and you can get a three-day driving prohibition if you have 0.05. So we've already got that in BC.
0: Well, that's true, and I, I was trying to connect those dots in terms of because I knew we had it in BC, but it only applies when.
1: It only applies when you blow into a roadside breathalyzer, um, so it's, it wouldn't lead you to get a criminal charge like it would in Utah, um, so you at least avoid the potential consequences of a criminal record. But we also have a lower blood alcohol concentration limit, and this is one of the new changes to the criminal code, when combined with drugs in your in your system at a certain level. So we're seeing now a trend in Canada towards ultimately what I think we'll see is criminalization of 0.05. Oh,
0: really? Uh, and- And it would be interesting, I suppose, and here's an unknown, uh, in terms of how cannabis or THC reacts to other meds you may be taking maintenance for, God knows what sort of medical condition, and you, you have a little cannabis on the side that may cause... Uh, a reaction you simply did not anticipate.
1: Oh, drug interactions are always a huge concern in drug-impaired driving cases, and with cannabis it becomes all the more a big issue because up until now we really haven't had the opportunity to study the drug interaction of cannabis and certain other prescription drugs because the ethics of, you know, giving people what was an illegal drug and asking them to experiment with that was questionable. We now have the opportunity and it's a huge opportunity to do way more research into how cannabis cannabis impairs uh, people, how uh, cannabis interacts with other drugs, and whether that produces any impairing effects.
0: Over the years, I have had many occasions on this radio station, in fact, where police officers have come down and brought a bottle of something. And they pour you a little shot of this and a little shot of that. And you have a chat for 10 or 15 minutes, and you catch a buzz. And they deliberately bring this stuff down because they want to prove the point to your listeners that by the end of our conversation, the host is slurring a little bit. Have you noticed, ladies and gentlemen? Now, I have yet to see a police officer do that with cannabis products. Do you expect that?
1: I don't expect that. Because of the way that cannabis is absorbed and distributed in the body differently than alcohol, you can't really have that same type of demonstration. You'd have to smoke the cannabis or uh, vape it in order to get the effects soon enough during a radio program. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you're doing that in a business, you're violating a provincial law.
0: Right. Of course. Okay. How, uh, in terms of uh, other laws, because we've been talking specifically with the criminality of impaired driving, what's the spinoff, the the spillover effect of these changes in the rest of the criminal code if if at all
1: well, uh, it renumbers a lot of the criminal code, so it makes a lot of references to various sections obsolete, um, which makes just interpretation of the code uh, very confusing. But I think we're also going to see a spinoff and a spillover in how people's applications for exclusion of evidence where their rights are violated is treated. Because we've lowered the standard for these invasive personal searches, right. um, we're now going to see, I think, judges becoming more comfortable with other types of invasive searches, invasive searches, so um, where police officers search your home without a warrant, um, but they have grounds to believe that you were doing something wrong in your house, we might see more of that evidence being admitted at trial because of the way that we've eliminated other legal standards.
0: Ah, okay. So, again, uh, these perhaps are, are going to, tr- some of going to turn out to be unintended consequences, right? A-
1: oh, absolutely. We're essentially making our society far more comfortable with the idea of, of being searched unreasonably and with having the police interfere with your personal liberties and asking people to accept that in the name of public safety. And as soon as you do that, as soon as you say, give up your rights because we don't like drunk driving and drunk driving is bad and it kills people and we all know that, yeah. it makes people more willing to give up their rights for the next thing that they identify as bad. Impaired driving is is an easy target. It's low-hanging fruit right. um, because nobody likes drunk drivers and nobody, you know, nobody wants them on the road.
0: AcumenLaw.ca is the website, correct, where we can find you, people who are in the pickle with the cops or just want some more information or maybe a a little guidance, can find Kyla Lee at AcumenLaw.ca. Happy New Year. Thanks for coming in uh, during your holiday break. We appreciate that very much. It's great to see you. And let's do this again soon in uh, 2019. Yes, thank you. And once again, our thanks to Kyla Lee of the Acumen Law Group for her visit with us today. There's a lot to learn about the changes to our laws, and Kyla was very helpful. Time for a couple more consumer quickies before we go today. These are tough times for J.C. Penny, A day after falling below a buck for the first time since it started trading in 1929, penny stock fell 8% on Thursday to close at 97 cents a share. A penny stock. The 110-year old company hasn't been profitable since 2010, and its prospects are bleak. JCPenney is $4 bucks in debt with a junk credit rating, a sinking cash hoard, and no sign of a turnaround. With few shoppers coming to stores, JCPenney faces inventory and supply chain struggles and no clear marketing plan or strategy. The company has been forced to offer steep discounts on clothing to clear its massive inventory glut. The company never really recovered from the Great Recession. It lost shoppers to cheaper sellers a decade ago and struggled to bring them back as the economy began to rebound. This isn't an isolated retail story either as Sears is also just about to fold and 2019 hasn't even begun yet. Sears never really recovered from the Great Recession either. It lost shoppers to cheaper sellers and has struggled to bring them back. Yesterday, a last-minute $4.4 billion bailout offer was made to Sears by a new. New York hedge fund. It will go to court in a few weeks. All may not be lost, although Sears Canada certainly has been. It's only a couple of days away now, and on Tuesday, dedicated swimmers will enjoy the frigid ocean water of Vancouver's English Bay for the 99th annual New Year's Day Polar Swim, one of the longest- running in the world, and most attended polar bear swims, too, according to the city. A record of 2,550 official entries was set back in 2014. There were more than 1,700 last year. Registration for the polar bear swim is required and automatically enters participants into a draw for prizes. Last year, 20 prizes were won by participants. The event is three, free, rather though donations of non perishable food or cash are accepted by the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. Food Bar- the 99th annual Polar Bear Swim starts at 2.30 on January 1st, and you've got to pre-register. You can do that at vancouver.ca. And if the Vancouver Polar Bear Swim is just too far away from you, here are some other locations. The Penguin Plunge in North Vancouver's Panorama Park, 12.30 on New Year's Day. Port Moody's Penguin Plunge opens registration at 11.30 before the swim at 1 at the pier at Rocky Point Park. Uh, Delta's Polar Bear Swim At Boundary Bay Regional Park in Tawassin starts at noon. The swim is at one. Fort Langley's polar bear swim starts at noon. And the beach, uh, at the beach, rather, on Bray Island Regional Park in the river. A big disappointment this year is the cancellation of the White Rock Polar Bear Plunge due to the damage on the pier. Still lots of choices, though, for those who absolutely must take a dip on New Year's. And that is our show for today, produced by Ben Dooley with Andrew Ferreira at the controls. We appreciate your feedback. Feedback, And if you have any comments or suggestions, send them along to sterling at cknw.com or tweet them to us at VanConsumer. I'm Sterling Fox. From Ben and Andrew and me, our best wishes for a safe and happy New Year. And we look forward to having you with us next Saturday at 2 for another edition of Vancouver Consumer on CKNW.